The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. You might have, like I have, got an email out of the blue from a friend asking you if you'd be keen to grab a piece of outdoor furniture or a scooter or a mattress comfort overlay thingy, or pretty much anything you can think of in order to help them fill up a container and get theirs and yours sent to you for a price way under what you'd normally pay. And then, like me, you've probably gone to the website to find out what on earth they're on about and found a lot of things you weren't previously aware you were in the market for, but look pretty good and are very well priced. And then you've probably fired off one of those emails yourself to another friend. If you're still with me and you don't know what I'm on about, the website is called Container Door, and it's an ingenious idea from a long-time entrepreneur with an eye for what people like, value for money, and the power of a brand at a good price. Ben Nathan is the CEO and founder of Container Door, and prior to that has taken many of the best-known brands in New Zealand apparel and found new homes, wider markets, and new opportunities for them. If you've been keeping an eye on fashions for a while, you'd know the brands Norsewear and Hero, Principles and Parker's Men's Clothing, all having found new leases of life with Ben. To talk the journey, the power of a brand, and sourcing things people just need to have, Ben joins us now. G'day, kia ora, thanks for joining us. Thanks Simon and thank you very much for uh, having me this morning. Hey, so first up, so tell me about the rag trade, something I'm fascinated in. How did you get started in it and, and what was the, the, the rag trade like? It, it used to be a huge industry in New Zealand, didn't it? Well, it did actually. I, um, I got into the rag trade through my family and uh, my father was a New Zealand manufacturer back in the uh, late 1960s. And um, my mother was the designer, and, and uh, my father would go around by the fabrics and organise the uh, production, and they'd travel around the world. And it was sort of I grew up um, with uh, you know family travelling, rag trading, and um, and that was a very traditional uh, manufacturing business. So it was manufactured in New Zealand, and uh, and um, they would go out and sell garments to some of the older retailers that there there are not many left now, um, and all the independents through New Zealand. Um, and then uh, as I was growing up and um, I um, found school a little bit difficult <laughs> and I uh, ended up um, uh, going into the rag trade and um, my father um, sort of taught me, um, you know, from a very basic, uh, from a very start up, up through to um, uh, getting on an aeroplane and, and sort of pioneering into China. Uh, he was quite early, an early adopter. And so uh, by age about 23, I was jumping on an aeroplane, 
two or three times a year and um, and learning about China and learning about importing and learning about negotiations and 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 really that's what got me started into the rag trade. Um, yeah, I, I was reading a thing the other day that was saying that. In the 1970s, there were 26 different independent menswear stores just around the block around Queen Street in Auckland. And, you know, we're so used to now all of the brands we see at the big department stores and and on the big mainstream retailers being brands from overseas. But, you know, all of those would have been chock full of individual New Zealand brands all made here at one point upon a time. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, so, so the industry has had huge change and... Um, even from my era, uh, with my own uh, apparel business, um, which I started in uh, sort of the late nineties, uh, it's been a huge change between, between uh, then and now. And then, if my father looks back and go, "Wow, what a change from uh, you know the late nineteen sixties through, through to when I started," it's just it's just a massive change. And um, um, you know, for better or for worse, uh, it's uh, you know it, it's a, a good argument to sit down and and um, and, and have. Um, you've got the demise of New Zealand manufacturers, New Zealand jobs, um, and, but then you've got the rise of um, cheaper garments coming to New Zealand and lots of big retailers springing up, large retailers throughout the country, and there's some really good New Zealand retailers still around who have actually done well, one being uh, obviously Barker's, which I was involved with just for a couple of years, mm. but they were one of those retailers on the, on the, uh, you know, on the block that are still there. Tell me about what the big changes were, because the the move to China for uh, manufacturing, but it was kind of the first big wave of those big Aussie retailers coming in that were already, uh, uh, as far as I understand it, that were already produced overseas that came in here and they had the Chinese production, they had the extra margin, and that kind of set off the first wave of dominoes of the, the small players here having to either change or, or die. Yeah, I, I I can't really comment too much on the Australian thing. I, I wasn't really that involved in in retail at per se at that point. Um, I was mainly in the sourcing side. Um, so, but yeah, of course, I remember the days when it was another Aussie retailers arriving on our shores, and and everyone had their back up. But look, the world has changed so much now. You've got retailers, you know, from all around the world, um, pretty much in every city in the world. You can travel around. You know the states, and and you can see cotton on. You know there's Australian retailers everywhere. It's becoming just a global um, marketplace now. Yeah, it's like if you visit four shopping malls in a day, everything's the same in there, the same inventory, the same stores. And if you visit four cities in a day, it's just the same on a bigger scale. That's right. It can get a little bit boring. I mean, I do a lot of travel, so you walk out of your hotel, you hang a right, and you see. H&M and Zara and all the big retailers. And then, again, you know, you're in another city two days later and it's the same thing. So, yeah, no, you're exactly right. And one of the things that can be enduring even in change are the power of brands. And something you've done that fascinates me is you've taken a, a number of, like, large large brands in New Zealand's kind of fashion uh, landscape and then given them new lives when they've either fallen on hard times or the owners have decided to sell Tell me about that. How do you get into doing that? Um, I, look, I, I, um, I don't sleep a lot, <laughs> so I'm always thinking about new ideas and coming up, and, and I just um, opportunities present themselves, and um, you know, I, I, it's something. Uh, it's an industry I knew very well, and uh, I suppose that I saw an opportunity when when these brands um, come up either for sale or. Um, 
and I can say, hey, I can make that work. I can I can fit that into my overhead structure. I can get that going. And uh, I, I tend to try and um, rather than just jumping in and buying it, I'll go around and um, actually make sure I've got a market for it first before I spend any money on it. And once I got that, yes, yep, hey, we're keen. We're keen to do business with you, Ben. Then I'd purchase um, you know, one of these, the brands. Um, and it's amazing. Every single time I've bought something, purchased a business or um uh, a brand it's been very different and it's the learnings that you you know that you, when you learn from um, either your mistakes or your failures uh, and think, oh I, I won't do that again and then the next time you go and buy a brand or a business you go oh I remember from last time I'm not going to do that and, and it's um so it's it's really character building but uh, you do learn a lot and that's um, you know that is uh, a really interesting way of um, building your business you just keep on learning and learning and, and looking at the opportunities. Tell me how how something like that goes. Like so, you know, um, people would know the names of Hero and Principles and Norseware, and yeah, like maybe the story of of, of Norseware, where you've managed to keep that um, going and keep the brand alive, even if kind of ownership changes, of manufacturing changes, of all kinds of things are changing. Yeah, Norseware was an interesting one. It um, it did fall on hard times. It's been going since the nineteen fifties, and the brand is so strong throughout the rural community of New Zealand, and um, uh, it was the the, the um, opportunity was presented to me, and I thought, oh, this is easy. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to get get some stuff made in China. It's going to be no problem. But in fact, you know, manufacturing in New Zealand is not easy, and um, uh, we um, I lost quite a bit of money in the first six or eight months learning learning about the rural sector and and um, the nuances of of that and the customers and and uh, you know it's very different from what I was used to. Um, and yeah, and I, and I learned a lot, and that was um, that was sort of diff- going through difficult times again. And I realised that like I'm not an expert at New Zealand manufacturing, and I don't really know much a lot about socks, which was the core business. So I ended up going to see the manufacturers, the factory that makes uh, the actual socks um, here in New Zealand. I said, "Would you like to license the brand and keep it alive? You, you know, you're a, you're a specialist sock manufacturer. You know what you're doing." I'll still own the IP and the brand and the name, the, and so um, essentially I become um, an intellectual property owner, and um, obviously keeping an eye on my, on the brand because it's you know I still own it. So they manufacture the socks, they ship out to all you know New Zealand wide, all the rural players, and um, so that was an interesting one. I thought I knew what I was doing, gonna smash in there, spend a whole lot of money. It didn't really work, and I had lots of people um salesmen on the road so um yeah things change and you, when you look at something you're going to realize that it's it's not you think you know what you're doing but actually um things can change quite rapidly and yeah so north we're still alive and well and thriving and um you know and it's a great new zealand brand ah, it's also and then some of these big brands as well taking them uh that the, they've had a big high street uh, retail presence and then they've sail too close to the the sun and then next thing you know um, you're able to give them another life into department stores yeah so there was some um, and, and it's for a raft of different reasons why people either um, decide to retire or the business is failing and they just want to get out or it might be a receivership um, there was one brand principles where the owners um, you know they had plenty of money they just like hey we've had enough of retail we want to get out we're going to close the stores down just slowly and um, so I ended up doing a deal with um, the owners of the Principal's Women's Wear brand. And then I subsequently sold it into large format retail. And um, 
It was good because the the large format retail was obviously not boutique-y and it was a lot cheaper and um, we made the goods um, overseas. Uh, but that did allow um, other consumers who coveted this brand, loved this brand, who could never afford it. Now it was it was available for the masses at um, not the masses, but available for people who um, you know were um, wanting to buy this. That was aspirational, and now it was affordable. So that worked really well. And um, yeah, that's uh, that was my strategy really for a few of the brands that uh, I purchased. And so that was taking kind of deep experience and sourcing overseas and being able to pull together. Uh, ranges and get them designed and made, you, you know, to the same quality at a lower kind of pr- price kind of uh, idea. H- how did that sourcing inform your next business? I mean, you must spend a lot of time on planes in and out of yeah, China. Well, uh, really, um, I suppose <coughs> I um, my, my business was starting to. This this is maybe ten years ago. I was up in. Um, I was up in China and I was in a factory that were making some very well-known brands, uh, those feathered down jackets. And back in those days, that was the hottest thing. and It was new. Now they're everywhere. But uh, And I saw these jackets going through the production lines. I think it was for Patagonia or North Face or one, one of those big American brands. And they had a ticket on the back of the neck, um, a retail ticket saying 400 US dollars. And I'm like, whoa, this is, you know, this is crazy. And I asked the factory to look at the cost price you know what? What are they paying for it? What are these guys paying for it? And I, I don't remember the exact figures, but it might have been sixty dollars US or sixty-five or something like that. And and I'm saying, well, sixty-five is the factory price. Uh, the retail price is four hundred. There's a whole lot of money in between. Um, you know, someone's either making a lot of money or, or um, and and I, I sort of had this um, this thought about what, why don't why can't consumers one day. Um, Surely consumers will be able to group together, like as a community, and purchase the same item. Okay, it's not going to have the brand on it, but it can be the same fabric and the, and the same specification. Surely they can buy it from the factory themselves for maybe seventy-five dollars or just a little bit more, um, and get the same product, pretty much. And so I went back to the hotel room and I started sketching down these ideas. This is ten years ago, and came up with a name. Um, Container. I was trying to think about consumers filling containers together, and then the, once the containers were full, the doors would close, and then I'm like, and then we could ship it to people's front door, and and so I came up with the name Container Door. This is in a hotel room, uh, like ten years ago, and um, and I just started thinking about that, and I, I wrote down all the categories, and I thought we could do sports goods and apparel and um, homewares and furniture and. And I started to get, you know, overexcited, which I, you know, tend to do. And um, I put the um, put that bit of um, A4 refill, wrote it down, put it in the bottom drawer, and I thought, well, the timing's not right. I've got a great apparel business, um, but one day I think this is going to change. And sure enough, about um, five years ago, uh, my wholesale apparel business um, started to um, turn, and my turnover was dropping away. I was selling to the big retailers here in, in New Zealand, and I was selling, you know, large like I was selling two hundred thousand pairs of jeans a, a year, and I was doing all sorts of baby wear programs and women's dresses, and I, I, we had a big business, uh, well, medium to medium sized business for New Zealand, and um, my turnover was going down. I was losing programs, and they, and I'd get a phone call or an email and saying, oh, that denim program now we 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 can find it cheaper. We're doing sourcing it direct from China. 
um, we don't we, we're not going to buy the jeans off you anymore. You know that that might have been a um, you know five million dollar deal that was off that would just drop off my turnover. And then a few months later, oh that t shirt program now. Hey, do you know what? We can get it cheaper ourselves. And all of a sudden, my I was getting um, cut out because the my retailers, my customers were going directly to China themselves. It was easier. China was coming a lot more easier. You know, you can jump on a plane and 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 get onto a train, and next thing you know, you're in a Chinese factory. And so, my business was going downhill pretty quickly, and I had to lay off staff. And I and so it's like, whoa, my I've I've got a couple of years left, and I'm not going to have much of a business. It's just going to fall away. So I pulled out that little bit of paper and in the, in the bottom drawer and dusted it off, and I had this container door and these ideas and. Um, so I thought I'd go, go my next trip to China. I will um, go and have a look at some factories that aren't apparel, and I'm in the market for a, a sea kayak. I, want, I love fishing, so um, I thought I'll spend um, uh, half a day or a day visiting kayak factories, um, which I, I did, and um, found these two. Uh, or found a, found um, out of the three factories, I found one that was shipping a lot to Australia, really good quality. And they would sell. Twenty thousand a year to Aussie, and I thought, well, if they're good for Aussie and they're they've got great customers, it's it's good, you know it's a good quality kayak. So I asked to buy two of them for myself, and they're like, nah, no, nah, you're not having two. You need to buy a whole container. We're not we're not making two kayaks for you. And um, so I did the pricing, and I rang a few mates, and I said, who's up for a sea kayak? They're about fourteen hundred dollars in the sports retailers here in New Zealand for a equivalent. Chinese made, good quality kayak. Um, how about I can do it for four hundred? And I had mates going. Well, I didn't really think I was going to be in the market for a sea kayak, but hey, do you know what? Four hundred bucks. If I don't like it, I'll put it on trade. Man, I'll make some money out of it. So I had a whole lot of yeses very quickly. Um, so I didn't actually buy any kayaks right then. I thought I'm going home and I'm going to start up a website. My idea. I, I've got to make this. I've got to start this website. So I came back to New Zealand, I rang around, found someone to help me build a website and that took about eight months to build it and play around with it and um, and then I launched Container Door with a kayak deal and I sold out a container within I think a day or something. I sold a container of kayaks just just like that at $499 um, and the, the market was $1499. And so that was really the, that was the story and the start of Container Door. It came from my business... A great idea, sort of from being up in China, but it came from my actual regular business, which I was very comfortable with, being, I suppose it's being disrupted in a way, um, and the demise of that business. The business is still going, but it's very small, and um, so that was really, that was where it started, and that's that, that's uh, the rest is all history, and, and there's been a lot of learnings ever since I started that business. There's something really interesting there in your business is getting disrupted because people are going straight to the customer in China. And so your reaction is to go, oh, I guess if this is the trend, I'll help people go straight to the, 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 the source in China. Absolutely. And, and that's really, um, I suppose when I look at the business and what um, I aspire to is uh, communities of people. So it's not just a whole lot of people online, but it's communities of people who should be allowed to be able to buy products that they love and want from the from the factories that actually make it, so um, and it's not just about importing product in China and putting it on the website and hoping it's going to sell. It's about communities 
also telling us what they want. And they might want a hand-built Italian espresso machine and you've got this these coffee nerds who love coffee and, oh, I want this, this is the way I want it built and blah, and all of a sudden you've got this community and we help them, we connect them with, you know, a uh, bespoke Italian coffee machine maker and, you know, sitting in Italy and, and we can connect them. And so it's really about any manufacturer, whether it's New Zealand manufacturer, China, America, wherever, um, it, we should be able to connect communities to those manufacturers so we can get a better price and cut out everyone in the middle. And that, that's, that's my worldwide vision uh, is to have communities being able to, like, I want this and we all agree, we all want the same thing, let's go and buy it and use the power together to buy it. How do you go about sourcing and quality controlling and, uh, yeah, like, 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 like building an audience for these things? Because having a flick through the website... It's not wildly kind of consistent kind of product groups. It's like it's all manner of things at all manner of price points, you know. And, and, and you, I kind of like was trying to picture, picture kind of like how does someone go about actually even just finding all these things? Well, that's right. So we, um, you know, <laughs> that was the funny thing. When people say, oh, have you been on Container Door? There's, a, you know, a barbecue and then next to it for sale is a bed and then and next to that's a, um, a set of champagne flutes. So it's like, it is quite funny. Um, but we, um, you know, as we grow and as we raise more money and we're putting more money into the business, we can hire category buyers, which we've just done recently. And now you'll start seeing, okay, here's a camping category and there'll be a whole lot of camping stuff. Here's a fishing category. Here's homewares. Here's, so, and then the um, website, once we uh, get around to it, because we've got a lot of things to, you know, develop on the website, You'll see it in, in blocks. So you just um, maybe you log on, and the first thing you'll see is all homewares. You just scroll down until you find what you what category you're looking for. Um, so that'll settle down. That's just a I think um, what you see now is a function of you know a startup finding their way. And um, uh, so we we basically look around and get a gut feel for what we think people want. Um, plus we get uh, our community telling us what they want, which is really interesting. And um, I suppose that sort of that's how the communities are then built. So we've got a great barbecue community, and you know they're really engaged and they love talking about barbecues. And we're going to have events, and and so um, and I, I I suppose they let you know pretty quickly if the goods aren't up to their standards and uh, don't consider them value for money. One hundred percent. And and actually, when you <laughs> You know, we can put something online, and we we might not sell anything, or we might sell one, or in two weeks. And well, that's the proof in the pudding. Why, why isn't it selling? Though they don't like it because the price, they don't like because the quality, they don't like it maybe because it takes two months to get here. I don't know. There's something that doesn't. Whereas other things we can put online, and man, we just cannot keep it. It's just flying. We can't sort of um, produce it fast enough, and they're, and they're amazing. So it's really interesting, and to then drill down and ask these communities why. Like, why didn't you like it? And that's that is such a great tool to have. It's um, it's such pure market feedback that you don't actually nothing gets initiated until the market enough people to make it worthwhile financially say yes. 
Absolutely. So we um, we can try anything. I and mean, we could put a birdcage up made in Vietnam that's bright pink. We might sell none or we might sell 300. It's quite hilarious how, and we don't actually initiate the, the sale until we've got enough interest. So there's no real risk. And that, that that's why we can keep our retail prices down. We're not a large retailer who buys in stock for the season, crosses in their fingers and legs and toes, hoping it's going to sell. And at the end of the season, they've got to mark down all the bad colours and the bad things that haven't sold. So we don't have that situation. In fact, We've got the opposite. We've got some people saying, hey, Ben, why can't these dog beds that you keep on selling, they're selling out. You've never got, it's always waiting, waiting, waiting. Can you just bring some in and have them in stock? They're your best seller and we'll pay a bit more for it because I'd rather maybe pay 10 or $20 more now because I really want it now and deliver it tomorrow than wait a month or two months to get it manufactured. So, um we're going to start looking at that very soon where we've got customers saying, I'll pay a bit more. It's still way under retail, but I want it tomorrow. I've got a party on Saturday night. So that's a really interesting thing that's happening with our business as well, at the, you know, just uh, right now, actually. It sort of transition into consumers wanting things immediately and they'll pay a bit more. Isn't that interesting, the same way that Warby Parker or um, as seen on TV, you know, they end up getting stores because people want to be able to go and pick them up and shake them and have a look and... and you still have that lower price philosophy. Yeah, that's right. And I think what, instead of us having stores, um, we're going to have, and I think we're a couple of weeks away, we're going to have a showroom um, based in Auckland. And um, we're going to have one of everything in there. And people can come down and sit down, touch it, feel it. Wow, I love it. Um, and yes, it's gonna, just going to be Auckland only, but we're not going to have a whole retail chain. But um, I think it's proven other online retailers around the world are now having like... Um, you know, maybe one showroom in every big city, and they just come along and look, touch, feel. They can't actually generally buy and take it away, but they can get it delivered the next day or delivered um, to their front door. So I think that's the way of the future for us. How did you go about first building the business? Because that kind of idea of the virality where you have to get your friends involved in order to fill the container if you want it to be filled up and no one's no one's buying the thing that you want in order to trigger it to send it. It's, it's kind of like a um, marketing stroke of genius there. How, how did you go about kind of like getting the first products to actually get on there and starting to get the word out? Well, I think um, if you look at uh, how containers are filled and how, how many things fit in a container, you can actually start off with bigger items. So you need to sell less to fill a container. So, um, for example, a 3.9-metre kayak, you're going to fit um, – you know, 70 in a 40-foot container, and you might only fit about 20, um, 20 in a, or 25 in a 20-foot container. And I know it's not actually, the 20-foot container is quite a lot smaller. I know it sounds weird, but the cubic meters. And, and so if you do a 20-foot container of large kayaks, you only need to sell 23 or 25. And so if we would sell 18, I go, oh, well, let's, I'll, I'll tell the factory to go ahead because we'll sell the others while the ship's on the way down and, and, and we might have a few left at the end. I mean, generally, we know it's a good seller. So um, we start off with that and then um, as the business got bigger, we started doing smaller items and now we're, you know, we can sell a small aroma diffuser. We've sold 4,000 of them now. It's out, we, they're a tiny thing, but, um, uh, and we consolidate. We might fill half a container with now, um, say, aroma diffusers and the other half might be dog beds. So we're still filling containers on the smaller products, but we're consolidating them all into one container. And that's why you might see on the website, um, oh, sold 10, but the deal's going through. Or we can actually, you know, put that in a container with something else. And, um, yeah, so 
it's, it's hard to start off with with a business because you've got to get enough people. But if you start off with bigger items and then move into smaller, so that's that's how we got around that. What items have surprised you that they've worked? Oh, um, <laughs> that is a interesting question because um, I suppose. It, I don't actually specifically, I can't recall what's like, whoa, that's crazy. But I, I do, on the um, on the other side, I've, I've had products like, this is just going to fly out. The price is good. It's awesome. I'm so, oh, my God. Every, hold on, guys. This is going to be a, a, one of our best sellers, and we sell nothing or, or, or not many. And, like, what is going on there? So, um, yeah, we have um, plenty of times where we get surprised of how well we've sold it. Like, we've just done some. A uh, thousand thread count Egyptian cotton sheets, and it just you know it was just going it's going nuts, and um, uh, whereas we might put on a barbecue, and it might be the wrong sort of barbecue, or people are like mm, I don't really like that, and we sell none. So yep, I just it's it's um, again it's usually either price or delivery or the demographics um, aren't really that keen on what we were offering. And how do you quality control it up front? Because I imagine, you know, let's say you get a whole container full of thousand count Egyptian cotton threads. Yes. And if your sample was better than the real, you'd have a lot of sheets to then have to deal with returns and all the rest of. That's right. So we have, um, we've actually had an office up in um, uh, Hangzhou for about two years. And we had three uh, staff. So it wasn't a massive office. And we had QC staff also going out the factory. So we would go and... Um, Check the items, and we would um, maybe do two or three shipments. One, we one, once we had a great rapport, and the shipments, uh, maybe three or four shipments went through, and with no problems, then we would okay, we'll just check them once every few months. But any new suppliers, we check. Um, look, things do happen. Like I've been in the business for a long time, and you're going to get problems no matter what industry you're in. So. Um, you know that's why we offer a money back guarantee. Don't be scared if something happens. You know, ring us up and we'll sort it out. And that's that's I think a great part of um, being a New Zealand based business. You got something to call. You can come and see us. And that's um, you know that is that is great about I suppose people I suppose um, getting them more comfortable buying online to know there's some backup there. And so yeah, we you know, we we do our quality control as best and be, as best we can. Because I guess you've really got to lean into that because there's scepticism naturally in something that's cheaper than where it is elsewhere. And also if it looks similar to a branded thing but maybe isn't branded. And I mean there are there is a mix of course on the website of branded things brought in uh, less expensively as well. But also yes. kind of similar but not. Yep, yep, sure. And that, that is another interesting thing. Like We do a, um, a Kamado barbecue which is actually, Kamado is a style of barbecue. And there are quite a few brands sold throughout the world, including New Zealand, of very expensive um, Kamado barbecues, and and even in America. But um, the Kamado barbecue we purchase is uh, the factory make for some very good brands, um, and they're shipped throughout um, America mainly. And you know we're way cheaper. They're on Amazon. We're way cheaper than them. It's the same barbecue. It just hasn't got their logo on it, and there's no. Uh, you know that shapes sold all around the world, so people can't say, "Oh, you can't sell that shape." Um, and yeah, some people go, "Is this legit?" You know, like on Facebook last <laughs> night, someone, "Is this legit?" And because the, they can't actually, um, <laughs> I get a lot of you know Facebook. We get a lot of vocal people, obviously. Um, and it's like, yeah, it's legit. It's from the factory that make these other brands. It's and and so they're like, uh, and once we deliver it and actually ship it into the, the um, customers, that is actually when we get. 
you know they're so stoked and it's it's like a no-brainer for them and they love it and that's what that's one of the most most favorite things is, is actually seeing the customer going do you know what i bought this thinking mm, not sure if it's going to turn up or if you know if, if the you know is it real the price is too good and when they get the product they're like you know they are stoked and they and that's what i love that's that's my passion to see customers being well this is real and i love it so yeah that's so interesting that you've worked at both edges of the brand thing so you've worked with products where the brand has carried a product that was not as um maybe made to the same prior specifications as the brand might have been in the past but the brand's kind of carried because of the association and then you've got the opposite end where the product is carrying the lack of brand yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, it's it is really interesting. Um, so I have done a bit of a full swing. So we do sell brands. Obviously, um, we um, either um, through New Zealand distributors. Sometimes who've been ringing us now and saying, "Hey, can we ha- can we sell some things on Container Door?" Or we parallel import from overseas to say, "Hey, look, we can get this legitimate product to you, parallel imported." Um, so yeah, it, it is interesting because we can have two things on the website. We can have a branded one, and we can have our own one straight from the factory, and they're quite similar. Um, and we can sell them both. It's quite yeah. It's depending, I suppose. Obviously, more we sell of the unbranded. It, it, um, it, no, I mean, from going through you know, you know Shanghai and seeing the the big fakes markets and stuff, and you, you look at them and the quality's the same, and you, you know the it makes you question the nature of reality. Like when someone says, "Is this legit?" and you're like, "Well, it's made of the same materials in the same factory to the same specifications. It just doesn't have." And in many cases, you know, not 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 suggesting there's any fakes on your site, but where there are fakes, they're often even got the same brand sitting on them. And the only thing that's different is that one's licensed and one isn't and i mean there's a range of fakes from you know the same through to very poor knockoffs but it does make you christian like where, where's the real in all of this <laughs> yeah no no that is right um and i've certainly seen look i see a lot you see a lot of that in the apparel business not so much in our business but a lot of the apparel business where um manufacturers manufacturers were um contracted to make branded goods and they would make say 100,000 t-shirts with a famous american brand on it they would then produce an extra two or three thousand. Uh, so they were made in the same factory, uh, but they are then deemed as illegal because they made two or three thousand more to sell on the, on the local market um, that is illegal. You can't do that because they're profiteering from that. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's brand the, there's brand protection teams now from these big corporates around the world, pretty much checking every label, every cotton thread. You know, it, it's. It's amazing how, um, and, and that's a big problem. That has been a big problem, and I've seen it, and um, I've worked with some of the guys overseas who run these programs, and, yeah, it's a big problem, yeah. In terms of your uh, expansion, so last uh, last year you raised some more money and then expanded into Australia, uh, but it wasn't your first time, was it? Because I, I saw online, and, and I love this, um, you saying that it was your second launch into Australia because the first time you launched for a day and then you turned it off. Well, what happened there? Yeah, we um, we thought Australia was going to be really easy, and we said, "Oh, we'll just turn the website on, and we'll start cranking away, and um, we'll spend a bit of money on some Facebook advertising." And um, and we, we, you know, we were only about a year old, and uh, so we were all cracked up, and we turned the website on, and we sat there and said, "Right, let's spend ten grand on Facebook advertising, and really give it a hammering." You know, we were in our infancy then. We spent ten grand on Facebook, and we just got nowhere. Just the the advertising. Um, it was just like a sprinkling. It, it hardly even touched the surface in Australia. There's so much to offer, and there's so much noise over there. And 
I was like, let's spend another 10 grand on it and let's try this and uh, more targeted. And it just wasn't, you know, the product was great, but we couldn't get anyone to visit the website. And so I said, turn it off, we're running out of money. So we turned it off. And, um, you know, uh, even, um, I suppose, today, um, we're working closely with an advisory company to find a partner in Australia who really, um, you know, has already got a big customer base and um, and already has that reach. So we don't have to go out and spend millions of dollars just trying to get customers to come to our website once we get them to the website, then we're we're we you know we're we're happy. But um, yeah, it's expensive and it's um, you know it, it's expensive territory, and I don't want to run out of money. New Zealand is very uh, important to us, and you know that's a, we've got such a long way to go in New Zealand. And also, you were mentioning earlier global aspirations, like the idea could work anywhere and connect makers and customers in any country. What's the, what's your dream for Container Door? Well, that's the, that is the dream. The dream is to be able to um, you know ship a container of goods into Long Beach, California, and the container opens up, gets on trucks, and gets sent out to consumers. And that can happen anywhere in the world. It's just a matter of getting the communities um, on board because um, we know that our prices, if we can do factory direct, with communities putting, the, um, you know, they, they pre-buy it, so we've got the money first, it goes to the factories, we can work on low margins, and, um, you know, we've got, and I get calls, I don't know, once or twice a week from people, random people from all over the place saying, oh, can we license this in, you know, Egypt, or um, we've had people from Canada ring me, Australia, saying, can we can we do Containador in our country? And I sort of want to keep control of it at this point, um, or at least... Um, I think rather than just people, entrepreneurs who think, "Hey, that's a great idea." Well, oh, never, you know, why didn't I think of that? I think we're going to partner with people overseas who really have a big infrastructure and can and execute properly. Um, so I'm prepared to give up, obviously, a chunk of the company, but to get a bigger share quicker, more quickly in, in overseas markets and without the pain and the expense of it. As someone who's kind of run into quite a few kind of burning buildings in business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like rescued a few brands out of uh, liquidation yes. or, or, or on hard times. And, you, you know, um, started to, you know, run an, an import business uh, when when the world's kind of moving to have more of like Alibaba and AliExpress. And I guess there's lots of, yeah, lots of risks and lots of people who could tell you, you know, kind of know or you shouldn't at every step. You know, if people told you that you're bananas to try these things and, and what, 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 what keeps you going into these difficult situations? Well, I think um, I love it when people say, oh, you're bananas and this is not going to work or that's a really weird idea. How's that going to work? And in fact, if you look at all the successful businesses around the world, especially online, when they started out, it's like, that's not going to work. Amazon's not going to work. You can't sell books online. And that's the whole point. If it was easy and you had a great idea that everyone knew and you could do, then everyone would be doing it. So you've actually got to look at the opportunities I see and and and, um, and say, well, what is different? What is going to – people say, hey, is that, you know, is that going to work? And you've really got to try it. And, and I think that's my philosophy. Don't try and follow everyone else. Really look for and see where the opportunity is, and, and that's um, with Container Door. Our, I suppose, difference between Alibaba or AliExpress and and Wish and all these so they all ship small stuff. So you can go and buy, you know, lipstick or a, a cell phone cover from AliExpress, and it can be shipped down. You can it can arrive between one week and three months, and you can do that on other websites. But try buying a kayak or a mountain bike or a, a dining room table on AliExpress. 
they just can't get it here. It's going to cost you three times of or four times of the actual cost of the, the the item to get it here. So that's why we are very different worldwide. There's no one really um, doing factory direct pre-selling of large pieces, and and we we wouldn't be able to compete if we were sold lipsticks and smaller things. We're just, you know AliExpress is is great for that sort of thing, but. Um, so yeah, we do do things differently, and um, I think that um, yeah, we um, we push the boundaries a bit, and we've got you know we've got a huge following now, which is which is great. What advice? A couple of questions we ask everyone on the, on the podcast. What advice do you give people who are interested in kind of you know do, doing their own thing and and being an entrepreneur? Ask a lot of a lot, ask a lot of questions and. Um, go and see people who have had experience and ask what they think and um, and really uh, try and find someone who can inspire you and, and um, help you through the process because uh, a lot of it is actually getting as much information as you can from a whole range of people and then making your own decision, sitting down and going, right, what, you know, and that I think is, is key because um, you need to get as much information as you can. And some people, some of the information you get back or the feedback from people might not be what, what you want to hear. Um, and you say, do you know what? I think, don't think they're right. But you need to have um, a good range of feedback and um, help, I think, to then be able to make your own decision on what you think, your gut feel and what you think you should do. And as a final thought, what's your definition of success having had quite a few different kind of peaks in the career? Oh, that's a... Difficult one. Um, I think success is so individual. Every person, um, success is so different. And I, um, for me, success, um, I don't see it as any one thing. I think I see success in a whole of even things that happen in the month, in the year, uh, in the day even. Um, and I look at success as having a whole lot of failures and learnings, and that gets you to your success. So it might be a marketing program you're doing at work and you've spent, Three, you've had three goes at doing it and it's failed and then you've used the learnings from those three failures and you've done a marketing program that's absolutely hit out of the ballpark and, and that's a success and and the only reason we've had that success is we've had to fail three times to get there and, and that can happen in all, I think, all facets of life within your home life, um, your work life. Uh, yeah, so um, success is not about sitting on a super yacht and you've got a Ferrari parked outside and... Um, you know, I don't really see that as success. Um, success is actually a whole lot of stuff throughout your life, ups and downs all the way through. And if you can get a few more successes and, and learn, then as you, and, and if you can pass that on to um, other people, then that's great. So, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Ben Nathan, CEO of Container Door, for joining us today. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much to Tina Door for producing, for Callahan Innovation for supporting the show as ever, and for you for listening. Thanks for having us along. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.